and welcome to the Asimov Cast. Short bursts of joy, thoughtfulness, and inspiration from the works of Isaac Asimov. I'm Lozzie. Follow the show on Twitter, Blue Sky, and Instagram at AsimovCast, or email to asimovcast at gmail.com. This week, during the off-season, I'm delighted to be joined by my friend, a fellow science fiction fan, and scholarly nerd, Tessa. Tessa, Hello. introduce yourself. <laughs> Thanks for having me on, Lazi. Um Hi, I'm Tessa. I am, as Lazzie said, a science fiction scholarly nerd. I um, I think the reason Lazzie recruited me to this is because I currently have a PhD in American science fiction, specifically medical humanities, and a lot of my work especially one of the big chapters of my dissertation had to do with androids. So I'm very excited to talk about Asimov and to talk about some of these bigger topics that Lazi has identified um, through his wonderful podcast. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I mean, and I also write about robots on uh, Movie John. I have an ongoing column um, on Movie John on androids and cyborgs in film. So this is something I'm obviously very obsessed with. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, firstly, I recruited you because you're a cool person who likes robots. And Yay! then the the PhD stuff was just like... I'm going to put that on my so. CV. I'm going to be like, Lazi said <laughs> I'm a cool person. <laughs> um, so do you want to give a, a little bit of background about sort of your first experiences with Asimovs and, and your sort of general view of, uh, of them as a writer? Yeah. Um, God, it's been... A long time. My, um, my, I was introduced to a lot of classic science fiction by my father, who is also a big sci-fi nerd, and you know, um, so I was, you know, I always, I feel like I talk about this a lot on different podcasts, but I, you know, some <laughs> of my first memories of watching television is Star Trek: The Next Generation. Like that is like a very foundational text for me. But uh, my childhood was filled with like robots and androids and cyborgs and everything you'd think of. I want to say I was probably around eight or nine, maybe, uh, when I first encountered Asimov. And I think it's because my parents used to get audiobooks for long car trips um, because they had three children and we were all fairly close in age. So I think for them, it was just like, we're going to turn on an audiobook and everyone's going to shut up for a while. Um, but they were good audiobooks generally. And I definitely remember listening to iRobot for the first time on audiobook um, in the car while we, I don't even remember what car trip we were on or where we were going, but <laughs> I do remember the audiobook and I remember it being very different from the science fiction that I had really up to that point read. Um, I remember at the time, I think I described it as like logic problems that are disguised as mm. short stories. Um, that's yes. especially true for those first short stories in, in iRobot. Yes. And I loved it. I thought it was great. I definitely re-listened to the audiobook probably a couple of years later. And then um, I really got into the rest of the robot series and uh, into Foundation later when my... Um, I actually didn't check out Foundation for a while, but one of my friends in high school really loved it and was like, you have to read mm. this. Um, and I think that Foundation... It's interesting thinking about those two things together because they are kind of looking at some similar ideas but from like very different 
perspectives and very different premises, even though I know that they are actually linked together in some ways. So well, they're linked together, but they were not intended to be linked together right. it's initially. Like, like more of an Easter it's, egg it's, type of yeah. It's it's a pretty. He's. I think. He, I think he did a very good job of making it seem like he always intended them to link together. Mm-hmm. And I think in a lot of the robot stories, as as he went along, you could see him building. Uh, I've referred to this before as uh, "Don't tell me not to reference my songs within my songs," because he does reference other short stories within his, within some of his other short stories. But yeah, it's um, uh, they they are, they were never intended to be, but reasonably seamlessly managed to string them all together quite well I think yeah and you know I'm also as I got older and as I started studying more science fiction from a a scholarly perspective I got more into a lot of the writers around Asimov as well Um, Mm. you know 50s and 60s science fiction is kind of considered this sort of golden age of uh, literary science fiction um, you and I, Lazzie, are both fans of Anne McCaffrey, for an example, um, yep. who was a, a colleague of Asimov. There are some rumors that they had a, an affair um, over a <laughs> really fun period of time at sci-fi conventions, apparently. Um, I, but... I like to think that everyone was fucking at sci-fi oh, conventions. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's what you really want in the, the 50s yeah. and 60s, is everybody's like showing up these sci-fi conventions. No, but apparently Asimov and McCaffrey were kind of like the... Uh, the quarterback and the prom queen of these conventions <laughs> like they were they were like the the royalty of these conventions i do think it's interesting that asimov as a sci-fi writer his name is perhaps more recognizable than hers now is um okay. even though i think that in many ways um she has also very much shaped um how fantasy especially has developed over the yeah. last half century but i I'm fascinated by Asimov's, um, I'm fascinated by his ability to preempt technology, um, but also the way that he expected technology to develop, I think might have actually been more interesting than the way technology has developed. Um, and so like, it's, it, you know, it's, it's fun to read his stuff and kind of think about it as sort of an alternative version of like the 20th century and like kind of where we eventually ended up yeah i think some of the some of the projections um have been really fascinating and really like ahead of their time and then some of them you can see he sort of drew assumptions in his mind and i think particularly the blur between robots and computers Mm -hmm. is an area where he he touched on it some in some short stories uh, as he started thinking about computers rather than robots and you can see obviously that really the concept of of a personal computer was so preposterous whereas the concept of the robot as this or an android as this sort of autonomous being uh back in the the 40s and 50s was less so it's um it is interesting to see what he predicts and what he doesn't like in one of his earlier short stories, he predicts that um, the United States government will ban all non-automated car travel in the early uh, 21st century. But people still have guns. And I'm yeah. just like, <laughs> there's some really interesting like choices there. And I will also say that he is extraordinarily short-sighted in his imagination. Or, and we'll, we'll touch on this later. Of, um 
on the role the women have in society. He yes. starts thinking about it later on in the 70s. He starts he starts going, oh, hang on a second. But very much in his, his early 40s, 50s stuff, it's, it's, uh, it's not so great. Um, yeah, but yeah, although no. I am obsessed a little bit. I'm trying to remember her last name now, but I'm obsessed a little bit with his character of Susan um, from Susan the Calvin. first. So Susan Calvin, yeah, uh, yes. The politics around her as a character are very regressive in some ways, but even just having a woman involved in like a scientific team developing robots is like kind of a big deal at his time. Um, so like you can kind of see he's pushing some boundaries in that area, but like not in a way that is necessarily the most like revolutionary. <laughs> so, I think I think she's a really interesting character and and when I wrapped up the Susan Calvin stories and, and wrapped up the complete robot, um I kind of described it as I can see what he's trying to do in that he's trying to push it and say well, actually, you know, a woman could be a senior person in this role and she can but he he does it in such a way, particularly early on, where she's toxically unlikable. Um, yes, she's very cold. So, like she's she's, she's very, very textbook frigid in a lot of ways. Like she can't be in love, for an example, and yes. have a career. So yeah, yeah. Um, and, but also she's the only female character. Yes, therefore she has to carry the burden, and that's where it really becomes a problem because that's. That's not an uninteresting and an unrealistic character. Mm-hmm. It's just whether she's the only woman or femme in the whole thing, it becomes a problem. And I think some of his later books, and I would particularly say The Bicentennial Man, which um, he won uh, the Hugo for, um, starts getting much better in terms of going... Actually, let's just broaden out the cast. It's it's kind of like um, diversity casting when you suddenly yeah. go, hang on, if we diversity cast, that actually just makes the world feel a little bit more lived in and it feels makes it feel a little bit more realistic rather than just every single character is male apart from this one woman who runs rings around them, but it's okay because she's unfuckable and uh, uh, isn't going to have kids. Right? Yeah, she's not. Her The robots are her children, right? And so like yes, you, exactly. there's a lot of that going on as well. Yeah, I and you know honestly I think that having diversity of characters generally in science fiction or any genre really it it honestly makes for better characters as well. You have more uh separation between characters. They feel more like distinct individuals that have their own stuff going on whereas something like especially those first stories which are very well written stories and I do enjoy them a lot you know, all the male characters who are messing around with robots, especially in space, they all kind of sound like the same person. Uh, you know, they all kind of sound very, like, they all had the same background, they all talk the same way, they're all white, they're all men, you know. And so it, it is, I think, a strength when it comes to even just storytelling to have different perspectives and different um, different experiences even in your books. I think it... it... What I found most fascinating about it is the blind spots, right? Mm-hmm. That it it um, it shows that such a wonderfully creative science fiction mind who can envisage worlds beyond worlds, you know, science fiction beyond science fiction, but keep it like kind of credible and believable and, and expandable. Oh, yeah. Can't, can't 
you know has this blind spot about oh but all the characters are male and the and the only ones who are female are are the wives and mothers mm. um or or Susan Calvin and i do think i maybe this is more generous than it should be but i i kind of look at it as a patriarchal failing rather than an asimov failing like it's a society a, a reflection of society and i i i would definitely call out the bicentennial man um as a uh, a novelette he wrote in the 70s which definitely starts to indicate progression i think uh, in his writing and in terms of his diversity of, of character. And I think you see that with the, some of the later foundation stories as well. Yeah. And, you know, I talked about this a little bit in my last Movie John article on uh, The Day the Earth Stood Still, um, which is a film um, that involves an android. Uh, very famously, it's one of my favorite films. But I was talking a little bit about science fiction in the 50s, especially um, the early 50s. And there's this big contraction societally after World War II, because in World War II, we get all of these minority groups, women, people of color, they all mm. suddenly have all of these opportunities that they didn't have before, especially in the workplace, because they're just, they needed the labor, they needed the bodies, yeah. right? But then after World War II, well, we don't need you anymore. So go go back to your house, right? Go back and be a housewife and, um, you know, marry a GI who's coming home. But those jobs are actually for him, right? And so it, the interesting tension in this 50s science fiction, especially at the beginning, is you have in some ways a reflection of that social contraction of, uh, oh, yeah, women should just be in, in the house and they should... Um, you know, they shouldn't be involved in these jobs, which is another reason I think Susan Calvin is an interesting character that she like kind of comes out of this attitude of, well, we've had women in the workplace now. And so we know it's possible, but we don't really want them there unless we really need them. Um, mm. But then you also have sort of this pushback in a lot of science fiction where a lot of minority groups had now gotten a taste of what that kind of financial freedom might look like. And they weren't willing to settle anymore. And so you get this like pushback and you can see um, you can see that paranoia in a lot of 50s science fiction. This idea that like any day one of these groups that we've kind of relegated to very specific roles in our society might decide that they've had enough. Right. Yeah. Um, and I think that that actually ties in a little bit to some of the things you wanted to talk about. Because in a lot of ways, robots, androids, they are stand-ins metaphorically for the other, um, for the yes. people who aren't human, right? Um, so yeah. they're a very flexible metaphor in a lot of ways. And I think Asimov especially, whether he meant to or not, is really playing a lot with the idea of labor and who do we assign labor yep. and who, what labor is not good enough for humans, you know, what labor do we give to the other? And so even though Susan Calvin and the lack, the lack of female characters, lack of women or femmes in this series, even though that's definitely a blind spot of his, there is a lot we can talk about when it comes to the robots themselves and who they stand in for as well. Yeah, I think, I think labor is a very good point and a very sort of currently relevant point yeah. as well. Um, 
And certainly what's fascinating is the comparison between robots as conceived by Asimov then and the roles that they would play and and take over from pet dog all the way up to, you know, uh, ladies maid and butler and... uh, uh, and uh, the and the perception of how AI is sort of being implemented now, and I want to stress for the fiftieth possible time on this on this podcast <laughs> that current in, in current implementations of what is called AI is certainly artificial, but it is not intelligent. No. That is not the same thing. No, um, it is not positronic. It is not. It is not. Uh, what you've seen in films or science fiction or TV. But um, it is not about taking drudge work away. It's actually about taking artistic work away. It's it's about, um, in the minds of the creators of it, using using large data set models to create reproducible things with mild interests uh mild uh, progressions in terms of the of what it's come from the data set but there's very very little creativity there there's very very little new there's really huge amounts of uh institutional biases that you see in any large data set and in any algorithm in society still baked into all of these things um and so i find it fascinating seeing people like claiming success of ai when they can type a prompt into uh you know chat gpt or bard or whatever and say give me a dinosaur fighting a triceratops with lasers and it will create an image based on a massive amount of (coughs) stolen data uh that (laughs) that that is used to train itself but like what's interesting about that like what is the what is the value of that labor as created by a writer or an artist or a or a creator for something which is already frankly undervalued in society anyway compared to how asimov would conceive it which is that the point of of robots is to do repetitive manual physical tasks and free up time for creativity although there are some relevant Uh, points, I think, in his stories to the conversation that we're currently having about AI. Um, The one that sprung to mind, especially when you were talking about institutional biases and data sets specifically, is the story Liar, um, which shows up in iRobot, the the first collection of stories, um, where you get, and I know you've talked about this, but you you get the robot uh, Herbie, who has telepathic abilities and we find out though Mm. that he's been lying to all of them especially in the department of romance because he is trying to follow the first law um and so like he doesn't want to hurt their feelings that although herbie is much more like you said much more sophisticated much more intelligent has a very different way of looking at things that is essentially part of the problem that we're experiencing with current ai is this idea that that ai is currently trying to spit back at us what it thinks we want to hear from it and so it's not necessarily even that accurate all of the time um which is a huge problem it's going to be a huge problem when it comes to things like what is true on the internet, something we already struggle with um, quite a bit Mm. in our society. But it's this idea that when we teach current AI, the um, the AI that we're all talking about now, it's not... um, 
it's not actually learning from factual information. It's learning from us. It's learning from what we give it. And so it's just going to reflect back what it thinks that we want um, it to um, reflect back at us. And so what it ends up reflecting back at us are is our biases, you know, it racism, you know, um, all of these types of things. I mean, and you can go on any news site and look at examples of how that's happened. Yeah, 100%. Like, yeah. It, it is training itself on on a data set that is not curated. Exactly. That it is specifically based on uh, who's created that data set before, mm -hmm. i.e. the bulk amount of, of it. And uh, I think worse than that is it becomes recursive, is mm -hmm. that AI generates then data based on that data set and will revert to the mean within that data set. And then future AIs... Uh, learn from the recursed that data set plus whatever the other AI has put out of it. So it just it becomes narrower and narrower and narrower. It creates a higher volume of data that is closer to the mean and and therefore diminishes the importance of the other of the of the outlying uh, data points on that set. And it looks far more focused on you know that sort of central pillar of who's created the most amount of information you know straight white men and therefore yeah. it it pushes back what it thinks is the the majority data set of that and, and it is what's flawed. crazy about that is that this has been a problem for years that especially black women yeah. in tech have talked about you know the idea that yeah. like motion sensors not recognizing black people's faces you know or um the way that certain images are categorized in very racist ways or that, you know, when you type the word family in an image um, search, like what normally comes up are white people, you know, like it, it's something that's been talked about for a long time, but it's been so ignored by mainstream tech. Um, it's like nobody listened at all to like, you know, yeah. someone sounding the alarms to these problems. But to me, it does really remind me of Herbie and the way that he's just trying to get everybody to get along, right? He's just trying to give them what he thinks that they want, even though, as Susan points out, rather cruelly, it is hurting them for him to do that. Yeah. And I think that AI is hurting us kind of in the same way. Yeah, and, and maybe it's worth a transition to just talking about the three laws in general. Yeah. Because what's, I think, the the most interesting part of the three laws, and the Susan Calvin stories particularly, is how Asimov set up these three sort of cascading principles that on the surface seem very clean and very simple and very easy to follow. And then immediately goes about picking holes and contradictions and uh, mysteries and problems with them and inherent biases within what seems simple and seems neat, um, which I find actually really fascinating. I find that the most interesting part of those Susan Calvin Actually, the most interesting part of the whole of the Complete Robot set is how those three laws which seems so clean to, and I'll say as myself, like the first time I read them in, in whatever book I read them as, as a child, I was like, oh, those are cool. And like, that makes sense. And it's logical and it's, you know, clear boundaries and one inherits from the other, inherits from the other, and it's all good. And as I was like, yeah, it looks simple, but life is not simple. 
and even robotic life is not simple. And so he sets up all of these. Um, every one of these stories is a conflict between the Donovan and Powell uh, books are the same, uh, or or short stories are the same, right? Setting up these conflicts between them. So I'm interested in what your reflection is on the on three laws, how you sort of first came across them and, and what your sort of first instinct was, because it, they're pretty, I think, pretty unique in science fiction as being so iconic as to transcend uh, science fiction from such an early phase. Well, and you have to also remember that Asimov is one of the first sci-fi writers to really dig in to robots as a concept. We see hmm. robots in other media before him, but generally they are automatons of some kind. They're not really, we're not thinking about intelligence. We're thinking about like a machine more than we are, like something that's mechanical um, that's been put together, or we're, we're looking at like a sex bot, <laughs> um, which is, you know, just its own thing in science fiction. Um, which I don't think does Asimov ever have a sex spot? I don't. Does he? I Asimov does have I a sex spot. I can't remember. Yeah. Um, One of the Susan Calvin stories is um, is about a sex spot, but it's but what's more interesting about it is that it's not about a sex spot. It's about for the same reasons you were talking about in Liar. It's about a robot who's trying to do the best he can by his human. Uh, mistress in this case yeah whose husband works for u.s robotics assigns her a robot to look at whilst he's away at, at his work and she's a bit dowdy and not not the sort of like the the not uh all of the women in town like her and they she doesn't throw the best parties and her house isn't as nicely designed as he might want so the robot goes about supporting and helping her with this. And actually the robot realizes that one of the things that would make her seem extremely interesting is if she were to have had a very attractive lover. Um, so he sort of sets this up and, and she falls in love with the robot and then it becomes, yeah. I so have like vague memories of this story. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I think that that's really interesting, though, that like humans, as soon as we came up with the idea of robots, um, which the term was invented, I think, in the 30s, if I'm remembering that correctly, um, or it was used in the 30s um, to describe um, to describe the idea of something um, that just wasn't human, um, that was mechanical in nature. Um, but Asimov is the first person to use the word robotics, for an example, in science fiction. Mm. He's the first person to use positronic brain um, as yeah. a foundational concept in robotics, which you now, if you watch any science fiction movie with a robot in it, you're probably going to hear the term positronic brain at some point. I mean, even data from Star Trek you know, has a positronic yeah. brain. Um, and so it's something that a lot of sci-fi people um, look back to. And I think the three laws also have that legacy um, because even yeah. though the way that Asimov explores them, like you said, by looking at like, well, what are the subtleties of language here, right? Especially like, what does it mean to harm someone? You know, mm. is are we talking physical harm? Are we talking emotional harm? Do you sometimes have yeah. to hurt someone in order to prevent further harm? You know, like there's, there's a lot of different interpretations there. Um, 
not everyone will look at robots that way, but you can see the legacy of those three laws that trickling down through literature about robotics, especially the first law, um, the idea that mm. they're like forbidden from harming humans. So like um, I just wrote, or I'm currently writing a article on Robbie the robot from Forbidden Planet, um, who will literally melt down if he's given a order to kill someone. Like he like yeah. almost has like, like he can't, it, it, like, is a conflict of, like, well, he's telling me to kill someone, but I can't kill this person. And so it yeah. just, like, melts his brain. Um, that's very Asimov. When is Forbidden Planet from? Because that, I mean, there's a, obviously, there's an Asimov story called Robbie about a robot. That sort of, like, conflict of laws causing a, a robot brain meltdown is explored multiple times yeah so, so uh it robbie... does feel like it's it's inspired by <laughs> robbie the robot is a good boy i love robbie um he <laughs> forbidden planet came out in 1956 um robbie right. was so popular i this is like totally off topic he was so popular that they had him appear in an episode of a television show just like no relation to forbidden planet he just like made an appearance and then he got his own film called the invisible boy again no relation to uh the forbidden planet they just really liked him and they wanted him to like be in more movies um but yeah. he i he's not um She's not a creation of Asimov, but when I was doing research on this, I did see that Asimov really liked Robbie. Like, he saw this film and did comment on the fact that uh, that Robbie did appear to follow um, some of the three laws. And so there is, like, that sort of yeah. connection there. But Forbidden Planet came out in 1956. Um, I would highly recommend it if anyone hasn't seen it. It's a beautiful film. Um, it's a sci-fi adaptation of The Tempest, um, which is very interesting to me. Um, Robbie kind of plays... Oh, okay. Robbie kind of plays the Caliban Osprey. character, kind of. Oh, Caliban, right, um, right. Okay. But, like, I mean, insofar as... You know, it's not, like, the most faithful adaptation, but... Um, it's it's a beautiful film. The the color alone is just worth watching. Um, it's gorgeous. But yeah, you see um, you see the the three laws in Aliens, for an example, um, because you have androids who can't harm human beings as well. Um, yeah. You know, you you just have a lot of um, you have a lot of sci-fi that likes to refer back to. Um, these specific laws either directly um, by quoting them directly or indirectly by having like aspects of them pulled into their robots as well. Um, the three laws of robotics have also had a huge impact on uh, on robotics as a field like of science um, because there was a long time in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, I mean, I would say even to today, but especially those three decades where robotics and computers and science fiction all kind of influenced each other in very interesting ways. Yeah. Um, and so, like, things that would show up in science fiction would be real things that were happening in the fields of computers, which was a fairly new field at the time. Um, but then you would also have science fiction weirdly affecting um sort of those fields as well. So a lot of these philosophers actually took up things like the three laws of robotics to talk about them in a more um, scholarly and philosophical sense. Um, and I think that it, the fact that Isaac Asimov himself was a scholar also probably helped that become more of a topic. Um, but the three laws of robotics, I would say, are probably as famous as the Turing test, um, which is something that was invented by Alan Turing in the 40s um, when he, as sort of a 
think piece um, that he did. Uh, and the Turing test is interesting too, because Alan Turing had this basically had the same problem that Asimov was starting to explore in his three laws of robotics, because he pointed out the question, can a robot think is a very hard question to answer because you then have to define what the word think means. And like, Mm. he's like, I don't know anybody who can actually define what that word means for anyone. Mm. And so, you know, it is kind of, they, they were thinking a lot at that time about like programming and language and like, what are the limits of language to describe what you want and you know something that might be obvious to a human in terms of subtlety isn't going to be obvious to a machine um and so that's going to interpret that in different ways um that was a really long answer to your question (laughs) no no but it was great it was wonderful and i like i've got so many things to spin off of it but like i mean the first thing is like so to me positronic is asimov's like hand waving this word means magic right yes and then (laughs) that obviously links to arthur c Clarke's uh, famous uh, any technology sufficiently uh, advanced is indistinguishable from magic quote which i think is sort of up there with asimov's three laws in terms of and arthur c clark obviously a, a contemporary and, and another of those classic sci-fi writers from from around the same area um i think so i'm uh, you know my background was computer programming and, and computer science and uh the thing about most well think about every single computer science language is they are significantly smaller and more structured than human languages they have way way smaller uh, vocabularies and grammar sets and they are languages like it is useful to think in java if you are programming in java as much as it is useful to think in french if you are speaking in french Um, and so of course the nuance is lost when you don't have I mean, English is is the worst one for this, like the biggest vocabulary of any language, uh, and therefore the most nuance and subtlety between different interpretations. We have like three or four words for the same object, you know, that we pulled from other languages. Like how in the world are you supposed to translate which one means what to a robot, you know? Yeah, it is. It is. Yeah, exactly. So, So it is, I think the, and I think the use of language as a, as a, connecting tissue between this is absolutely right like that's where you have to use the you have to define the three laws in very simple language in order to make something work within a any sort of programming context and therefore all, a lot of nuance and subtlety is lost so the to to go to the first law and uh, point here like what if two people are going to die how do you choose which one to save what if on a second law basis what if uh, a human being orders you to kill one person because you'll save a hundred people how do you how do you interpret the old that? robotic trolley be- problem <laughs> 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 exactly uh yeah it, well, it is right it's literally like it, it starts starts going down those routes and i think that um you know some of the particularly like a lot of the donovan and powell uh, ones are about the subtlety of exactly how you frame a question within the concept of the laws so you know go away what what does that mean to a robot that is forced by second law to uh, object to you know to follow what a human says well it's it's allowed to go it has to go away but it can't hurt another human as it goes away and if you say go away in a sort of flippant go away sort of way well what about its self-preservation which is a third law 
uh, concept, how does that outweigh a mild second law request versus a firm? Uh, so like Asimov starts introducing this concept of tone effectively in the way that instructions are delivered within the context of these things. So I do think it's, um, I do think the language subtlety is exactly the right thing to pick up on here. Well, and again, that's where we fall things down in modern AI. Yes, um, absolutely. Because because we're trying to simplify and and create it's not just the create the digital creation of an analog data set because we're actually reasonably okay at, at doing that and have been doing it in in fields of music and film and TV for a long time it's more about the subtlety of language that really starts to fall down that, that you can't you are inherently having to group things together to say that they mean the same thing when to a human interpretation they absolutely do not yeah and like uh, to kind of go back and pull on something i said earlier there is a sense especially in those early stories when they're sort of setting up the idea of here are the three laws this is why they decided to to use these three laws as, as opposed to some other laws um, for these robots you get the impression that whoever wrote these was like, okay, I'm going to take these concepts, which we should definitely talk about why those are the most important concepts and boil them down to their simplest possible uh, distillations. And yet, you know, and it sounds simple, like don't you, you cannot harm another human being, right. Or, you know, or through an action, allow a human being to come to harm. That seems very, very simple. But when you start pulling on words like harm, when you start pulling on mm. words like inaction, right, that's when you start to realize that th those statements are not simple at all. Um, no. You know, there is a lot of variation in how you can interpret that. And what I find fascinating about Asimov is not only does he talk about all the different ways that you can interpret or have that subtlety, that miscommunication in language um, in these stories, but he also is really challenging our idea of simplicity um and the idea of well like what is simple in language is there anything that's really simple in language at all yeah and i think your point about the inaction aspect of it so there's one of the short stories also and it's another susan calvin one which says if you remove what happens if you remove that inaction so the the experiment setup is the robots aren't uh, allowing humans to do things that are slightly risky and slightly dangerous because they might come to, to harm mm -hmm. uh, in a space mining situation, effectively. And the um, so they the government insists that they provide them provide a bunch of robots where half of the first law is is removed. So the inaction part. And Susan Calvin is immediately like. A robot without the inaction clause can drop a human being because from a great height because they know they can catch them. Right. And then once they are dropping, choose not to do anything because it's no longer there. There they are not harming the human. Gravity is harming them. And the, again, the like the additional loopholes that this starts to add in and build in, and the logic holes in in the sort of preservation aspects there what i think is really interesting though is that we can dig into these pitfalls of language and subtleties of language and 
I like about what I like about that story is that it it very much reveals at least to me it reveals part of the issue of the third laws like the the thing that's sort of standing behind the three laws that Asimov doesn't like he starts to kind of talk about it but it's more like you can see its shape just by kind of all the things that he talks around it which is these robots like we said at the beginning they're created for labor they are a capitalist Mm. function right and so Mm -hmm. you'll very you'll notice in that story that as soon as they stopped being useful for their function oh we have to take out part of that programming right because they are too useful. They are too valuable for us to allow them to um, hold up production or hold up the work or whatever you want to say. And this this begs the question quite a bit of why are these the three laws? Um, because if you think about why they are the three laws, it becomes immediately very much based on exploitation of labor. It becomes very much this idea of we have created an other who is stronger than us and that will eventually be smarter than us um, with repeated um, variations and repeated different models. And we are afraid that they are going to kill us. But then the question is why? The answer to that question is always going to be because we treat them like shit, right? Um, Mm. And so, like, the question always is, why are these the three laws? Well, if you look at the first one, it's fear of being killed, fear of being harmed by a robot. Um, The second one... um, the second one is the obey one, right? The third one is the one. Correct. Yeah. yeah. Um, The second one is always obeying another human, which to me seems very... um, colonial in its attitude um in terms of like you know like why are you insisting on this being um you know giving you its absolute obedience right well it's because you don't want it doing its own things or having its own opinion on the things that you've asked it to do um and then the third law is that it can't destroy itself um unless it comes in contract with the first two laws again why would a robot want to destroy itself Maybe it doesn't want to live in this system that you have set up. And so, you know, you start to ask these questions of like, why are these the three laws? And to me, I, I find it fascinating that once you start digging into it, because if you, once you start digging into it, you realize that it's all about capitalism and it's all about subjugation of a labor force, right? We want a labor force that we absolutely control, that cannot rise up against us, um, that um, we feel okay about asking to do these incredibly hard things and not allowing any measure of freedom to because they're other. They're not human. They don't have the same rights as humans. Mm. Um, but what's interesting to me about that question is that, and I know people listening to this might be, well, we don't want robots that can kill us. Well, sure, but there are other ways. We don't train humans to kill other humans, you know, unless it's in a military context, right? We don't generally raise our children, generally, raise our children to break any of these laws necessarily either. Um, And so there are other ways of encouraging robots not to harm humans besides, you know, these specific three laws. So I... I find the laws fascinating just in terms of, like, why these three? Well, the answer is because they're a product. And we want them to adhere to these laws because we are afraid of them. Yeah, and I think that uh, the comparison with, like, well, you know, we don't train humans to, to train to kill each other and we have a law against that is, yeah, but the law is not a compulsion. Right. It is a societal expectation. 
And I think it is fascinating that the third law, i.e. the one of self-preservation, is subservient to the second law, mm-hmm. I think. I think I think seeing it as subservient to the first law is understandable from a construction of a robot perspective is like they are they are machines they are tools they, they've been built they should they sh- they're expected to serve and provide this capability f- for every given variable of capitalism that you <laughs> right. rightly raise um, and some of those jobs are that... really shitty like some of the ones he describes like are really really bad yeah yeah yeah, but equally, some of them are also non-achievable right. without yeah. robots. And I think that um, the, again, I'll come back to the Bicentennial Man here, it really starts inspecting this. So it inspects the fact that a human can order a robot to stand on its head, mm-hmm. and it has to do it. A human can order a robot to disassemble itself, and it has to do it. Um, and, uh, you know, the point get ma- that gets made there is there are no laws protecting robots from humans. Right. In fact, there are ro- laws protecting animals from human cruelty, but there are no laws protecting robots. So if they have the three laws, maybe there should at least be a couple of laws in the other direction. Exactly. And he gets to it, right? He absolutely gets to it. And I would you know, really strongly recommend if anyone, if anyone reads one Asimov story um i would really recommend the bicentennial man it's 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 up there for a reason and we're going to leave it there with tessa and we'll split up this uh lovely chat and uh, catch up with her further next week thank you for joining me you can find me at lozymandias on blue sky you can find the podcast on blue sky twitter and instagram at asimovcast the theme music is courtesy of Alexei Chastillon from Pixabay. Please email your thoughts, what inspires you, and where you find joy in Asimov to asimovcast at gmail.com. Recently, we also put out our Horny Chaotic podcast about the Horny Chaotic HBO show True Blood, the season one finale, so please check out Fang Bangers with a Z podcast. Go now. Do not harm humanity or by inaction allow humanity to come to harm.